Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to welcome today the first speaker in our fall series on America as global citizen, journalist Martha Raditz. Welcome, Martha. Good to have you here. Uh, Ms. Raditz arrived near midnight last night and uh, she flew in from Washington, D.C., where she lives with her husband, another celebrated journalist, Tom Jelton, and uh, her in-laws, Mr. Jelton's parents, are here in the audience. They're local Minnesotans. Where are they? I just want to recognize them. Here they are. Nice to have you here. Welcome. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the Minnesota International Center, whose distinguished 50-year history of educating Minnesotans on global issues and cultures has made a significant impact on our community. I'm pleased to introduce the president of the Minnesota International Center, Carol Engelbretson Byrne. Carol, would you stand, please? There you are, Carol. We're very proud of the Town Hall Forum's history of providing programs that are free and open to the public. This is made possible by gifts from friends and supporters like all of you. If you would like to be among those who provide ongoing support to the Forum, you will find envelopes on your way out of the tables as you leave the sanctuary today. As you came into the sanctuary, you should have received an index card. That's for recording a question you might like to have asked of our speaker. The ushers will collect those cards at the end of her first part of her presentation, and then I will present as many of those to Ms. Raditz as we have time for. The Town Hall Forum is pleased to partner today, as it has for over 25 years, with the news and information stations of Minnesota Public Radio. Some 60,000 listeners will tune in on NPR locally to hear this program, and I'm very pleased to say that uh, we've just learned that the program being recorded today will be distributed nationally by American public media. So. We're going to be on national radio. How about that? Uh, particularly important for the high school students. We have uh, about 100 students here from Southwest High School in Southwest Minneapolis and from Perpich Center for the Arts and also from Blake School. Welcome to you. It's wonderful to have you here. And I'm going to ask you to make a little noise to indicate for real that you're here for this national audience on, on NPR, so get ready for that, all right? In a, in a few moments I, uh, moments, I will receive the signal that NPR is, in fact, recording the broadcast, and that at that time, I will reintroduce our speaker to you and to the radio audience. Ms. Raditz will speak for approximately 25, 30 minutes. At the conclusion of her presentation, I will reintroduce the forum to the listening audience while the ushers collect all of your questions. If someone needs to leave early, that would be a good time to, to slip out. And then we'll proceed with the question and answer period. At this time, I would ask that anybody who has an electronic device that might go off uh, during this time period, if you would take those out and turn them off, and we'll listen to the chimes as they go off. We don't do this on Sunday mornings. I always feel like we should, but thank you for turning off your cell phones. Following today's presentation, we invite all of you to join us for a light lunch in our great hall, which can be reached by exiting either on the right or on the left at the front of the sanctuary. 
And for those of you who would like to continue a conversation on the topic presented today, a facilitated small group discussion will happen in the Bates Room right out the door over here to your left. And representatives from the Minnesota International Center's Great Decisions Program will be there to facilitate a conversation, to continue really the conversation that we begin here as part of our town hall forum. Thank you for being here today, and in just a moment we will begin. Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for over 25 years we have offered Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, moderator of today's forum. We invite you, listening on Minnesota Public Radio, to visit us in person. All these forums are free and open to the public. Information on our fall season can be found online at eWestminster.org. We are pleased to welcome to the sanctuary of Westminster Church this morning a number of students, about 100 high school students from Purpose Center for the Arts, Southwest High School, and Blake School. Could you say hello to the radio audience, please? I wasn't kidding. They're here in our sanctuary. It's now my, my pleasure to introduce the first speaker in our fall series on America as Global Citizen. Martha Raditz is a familiar voice to public radio listeners from her years of reporting on foreign policy, intelligence, and national defense for national public radio. Now at ABC News, she has reported from the State Department and from the Pentagon, and today serves as the network's chief White House correspondent. On weekends, public television viewers see her regularly around the table as a panelist for the PBS news show, Washington Week in Review. Over the course of her career, Ms. Raditz has earned numerous awards for her reporting, including a Peabody Award and two Emmys. With less than a month until the November elections and with new controversies swirling around Washington, we look forward today to her front row view from the White House. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Town Hall Forum, journalist Martha Raditz. How to, uh, but apparently, turn on a microphone. <laughs> Someone else does that for me. <laughs> we managed to have that done again. Let me just say again, this is the prettiest place I have ever spoken. It is uh, much prettier than, say, Saddam Hussein's palaces, <laughs> which, which are, which are fakes. But uh, it, it is, it is absolutely beautiful in here. The stained glass is spectacular, and it's great to see all the high school students up there cheering in church. It's hard to cheer in church, isn't it? It just kind of goes against what you're, what you're taught. Uh, I'm very honored and humbled to be speaking to the Westminster Town Hall Forum. It is an organization whose roster of speakers uh, I pale in comparison to, and I looked at all the photographs in the hallways and the other speakers you have had before, and I'm just grateful I'm the first speaker of the season, so you have no one com to compare me to. 
I also find it inspiring, and I don't speak very often around the country because, frankly, I don't have time, and ABC doesn't let me off the leash very often, but I find it inspiring to speak to groups like yours who are so interested in the world, who are so well-informed, who take the time to look at complicated issues and dissect them. I think, and sometimes especially in my medium, we reduce things to very short attention spans and we sometimes lose, not ABC of course, but that we sometimes lose the skills of critical thinking and deep thinking, so you high school students in particular remember that. It is a wonderful thing to look at issues in the world. It, it matters very much to me that people are educated about what's going on in the world, that they have differing, differing views. It is wonderful to hear all kinds of views wherever I speak and whoever I talk to. My topic today is global hotspots of view from the White House. As you probably know today, the view from the White House is the hottest of hotspots is Washington, in particular Capitol Hill. So when I left last night, uh, as my colleague George Stephanopoulos said on the air, I believe he said, uh, Washington right now, the Republicans are like a firing squad that has formed a circle and they're all shooting each other, every man for himself. Is that partisan applause? <laughs> so I, I was happy to get out of there. Let me, let me first tell you what my view from the White House is, uh, which is quite extraordinary. I've been covering the White House for almost a year now. My view of the White House every day is from the briefing room that a lot of you may or may not have seen and followed these briefings. And by tradition, we are in the first row, and I am directly in front of the podium. And to my left every day in all of these seats, we have little gold things on our seat that say ABC News. And next to me is Helen Thomas, who does not, <laughs> not engage in a lot of chit-chat, but, <laughs> but she certainly has some very strong opinions. So I have the historic Helen Thomas to my left, and I have a Reuters reporter to my right, which is usually rotating, and the rest of the network bulldogs, uh, because we tend to dominate these briefings because we are on the first row spread out along. And in front of me, and you cannot imagine how close Tony Snow is to us, and the, on the occasion when the president comes in the briefing room, I, I feel like I need reading glasses to, to I, I find myself backing away, we're so close to them. Um, and we are in a new briefing room, which is not actually in the White House anymore. We were moved out about a month ago, and frankly, I was very happy about it because it's about this big, and our workspace is about this big, and we can all hear each other talk. And so we're in this new briefing room, and they're building us a new one in the White House, which I'm sure will be exactly the same as the other one with cleaner carpet. Um, the briefings, if you've seen, are, are by Mr. Snow, who's been there a couple of months now, and he replaced Scott McClellan, and I, as I have said to people, the, the Scott McClellan briefings became somewhat of a show every day. Uh, they, they sort of lost their meaning of actually getting answers. I know Tony Snow uh, has his devices to avoid answering questions as well, but uh, it, it is pretty good theater every day to watch these briefings. It's also intellectually difficult. I mean, you get up every day, you have to be briefed on everything that's happening in the news and go in there and try to battle Tony Snow. Now, if we have a presidential press conference, it is usually called no more than two hours in advance, and we're all quite certain it's called two hours in advance or less, so we don't have very much time to prepare. Uh, it's also uh, called either on a day where I've scheduled a vacation, a parent-teacher conference, or a doctor's appointment, and always when I've had zero sleep. 
I, I can't tell you how many times I've been dragged into these things uh, with the president when you try to go back and forth with him. It, it is also um, one of those things that you get up in the morning sometimes, and I'm going to admit that when we're talking about global hotspots, there are really so many of them in my 20, 25 minute speech, I couldn't possibly hit them all. We couldn't even get through all the ones that just start with I. Uh, and there are many mornings when I wake up and I'll get called and they'll say the president's calling a press conference in the East Room and I, I think now who's the leader of that country and who's, it, it is very demanding and you really have to be an expert on almost everything and an instant expert and particularly the way TV is today. I, I actually very much like live television. I like particularly the special events and if it, there's a presidential press conference or if there's a presidential speech or if something has happened to do analysis afterwards. It is difficult for a journalist and, and I am often on this week on the round table as well as on Washington week, but on this week in particular, I am always squeezed between a columnist on the left and actually a columnist on the right is on my left because it's usually George Will and a columnist on the left on my right. Follow that? Um, and, and I'm not sure that viewers understand that I can't quite go there and I can't quite voice opinions. But I do think analysis is important on those programs, and I think analysis, when you look at it, and you, I, and I have covered this stuff for so long that I feel that I can be an analyst. I don't want to give my opinions, but I certainly can give analysis of events that I've seen. Uh, so let's start looking at the global hotspots, and I will start with A, Afghanistan. I am lucky in covering the White House because I have covered national security for so many years. And I've been to most of the hot spots, so that makes it even better. Um, Afghanistan, I can't even tell you how many times I've been there. I've been there a lot, and I, I want to tell you a little bit about what it's like first, and then we can talk a little bit about the policy of Af in Afghanistan. Um, to get to Afghanistan, it is, it is biblical. It is every description you've ever heard about, about that country. It is absolutely biblical when you go. It is, I've been all over the world, and when I first went to Afghanistan, I was just stunned. We, we, it, to get around the country, you go in Chinook helicopters, the kind with the double rotors. The back is down, and you're just sitting on the sides of this helicopter. In fact, my favorite spot in the helicopter is to my in-laws will hate this, but is sitting on the back of the helicopter and you can strap yourself on and let your legs dangle over the side. But for two hours, um, I'll send you the picture someday. <laughs> for, for two hours, I remember taking a ride and I was sure we must have been going around in a circle because you see sand-colored desert and dust and then you see really high mountains and then you see a camel and then you see some mud huts and then you see it all over again. And you just go round and round and round but we were actually going across all of Afghanistan. Um, it is incredibly easy to see when you are there how someone could hide out, frankly, for years and years and years. It's one of those things that I think, you know, and we all the time, whereas Osama bin Laden, how come you can't find him? It is terrain like no other terrain, and it is caves, and they are mud huts, and he is probably not in Afghanistan, he's on the border, and if you ask uh, Musharraf, he'll tell you he's on the Afghan side. If you ask Karzai, he'll tell you he's on the Pakistani side, so maybe he's somewhere in between and you know, straddling the line. Um, the trips I have made there, I have been to the most remote, really the single most remote base there. Uh, on the Pakistani border that, that looks right into the area where they actually do think, where U.S. intelligence 
believes that he is just over the border in Afghanistan. And there were uh, 60 soldiers there. And it was really, uh, Fort Apache, it was really quite an experience. And these 60 soldiers there with, with really no comforts of home whatsoever up in that remote area. Um, and you could see, to me this is important in, in covering what I cover to see all of these things. I, I come from a generation of reporters where I have to see field touch. I can't just talk about policy. I can't just talk about how we got to where we are. I can't, I, I, I'm very much against the conventional wisdom. I sometimes, when I do these Sunday shows, I don't, I try not to read the paper columns in the morning or, or the week prior to that because I try not to think like everybody else thinks. I, I try to bring some original thought. I'm sure I don't always do that or I'm not successful. But what I can bring to it is my own experience in these places. And to see Afghanistan and to see the complications that when I went to this base, um, it's called Shkin, on the border, they had just lost three soldiers to a, to a mortar attack. And the way that happened and, the, and what the U.S. could or could not do to respond to those attacks, the attacks were coming from the Pakistani side of the border, and the U.S. forces can't really just cross into the Pakistani side of the border unless they're after someone. So when they get indirect fire like that, the rules get fudged a little. But, but clearly, um, the, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda elements that were launching those mortar attacks were trying to get the U.S. forces out of their fort, which is pretty much precisely what happens, and then they can attack them, because if they're in their forward operating bases, it's much more difficult to attack. Um, so Afghanistan, you've heard the administration call it a success story, and in so many ways it is. They ousted the Taliban five years ago. They got rid of al-Qaeda elements. But the bad news is uh, they're coming back. And as you have probably seen, the attacks on US forces have increased substantially. Uh, Taliban rule in certain places is uh, digging in. I remember last, not this summer, but the summer before going over there with um, some senior officials and they were all warning of that, that they were all seeing signs that the Taliban was starting to come back. Now, you can look at that as, the, as a time when we're reducing forces over there. You can also look back and certainly know that uh, forces were taken out of there, special forces were taken out of there uh, just before the invasion of Iraq. And uh, they've gone back and forth and back and forth, and that's certainly an argument for all time. Um, next door we have Pakistan. And the president, and I'm just terrible with dates, but I think it was about six months ago we went to Pakistan and India uh, with the president. It all mushes together. Sometimes I can't remember what season it is or what year, so just hang with me on that. But I think it was about six months ago we went to India and Pakistan. And one of the things about these presidential trips is you are truly in the same bubble the president is. In fact, you're not really in the same bubble, you're in a different bubble. Because he's in his bubble and you're in your bubble, and I always tell people we could have been in Ohio, uh, because you don't really get out very much. And, you, and the trips, you actually have less contact with the president and his staff when you're overseas than you do every day in Washington, um, which, which the access is, is really fairly good when you're in Washington. I mean, you see the president fairly regularly. Again, you see Tony Snow every day, and, and his senior staff you, you can usually get in touch with as well. Um, so what I like to do and what I did on this trip is I like to go over before the president arrives so you can at least get a notion of what's going on there. And, the, and when I went over, I interviewed President Musharraf. And this was before his book tour, which 
have you all heard about? This was one of my favorite moments in the White House <laughs> recently when we asked him about statements he had made about pre-9-11 and was he bullied into being on our side. And, and he said, I'm sorry, I'll have to wait until my book is out. I, I honor Simon & Schuster. Just, even the president, I remember seeing his face and he was looking like, oh, that's a new answer here in the East Room. I'll have to try that one. Um, so he, but, but Musharraf, it was very interesting because I think he was prepared for a very calm little, you know, how great a job are you doing, President Musharraf, and tell us more about what a great job you're doing. And it turned pretty combative because I had actually come armed with some facts about them, about Musharraf not really going after the Taliban that I'd gotten from, from senior military officials about the fact that he was not, that yes, 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 and they said, look, he's gonna say we're going after Al-Qaeda, and he's right, you gotta keep pressing him on the Taliban, which I did, and his, his aide stood in the corner, and I could see Musharraf just getting angrier and angrier, and kept looking over at his aide and trying to get out of there, and, and they finally just basically cut us off and sent us home, and it, it ended up being front page news in Pakistan, because the president isn't usually pushed like that. Um, since then, if you, if you saw at the White House, um, President Musharraf and, and President Karzai from Afghanistan, Karzai basically blames Musharraf, Musharraf blames Karzai, and, and President Bush said he wanted to see their body language that night, and boy, from the shots we saw of them, the body language was not good. <laughs> they, were, they were not exactly getting along. Um, all of these hotspots, and we have Iran, and you can just look at the paper any day and, and realize what the White House and what the president is dealing with and what I try to figure out every day. We have Iran that says they will continue to enrich uranium. This, this is one of the places that I will say I, I cannot figure out what they're going to do here. It is one of the most complicated hotspots in the world. You have Ahmadinejad, the president of Iran, who is about as in your face as you can get. You've got their neighbor, Iraq and you've got uh, the United States that does not want to get into another conflict right now and really can't get into another conflict right now. And you hear diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. But one of the keys to diplomacy is getting everyone else in the UN and on the Security Council to go along with what it is the United States wants to do, which is sanctions. And the United States is having a very, very difficult time convincing anybody that sanctions will work. Will they work? I have no idea. But they're sort of at a standoff, and Iran is in your face. North Korea is very much defying the U.S. and the rest of the world by announcing yesterday that they're going to test a nuclear weapon. The U.S. has been convinced for many, many years that North Korea has nuclear weapons, but they have never tested one or never been so out front. Um, so we have the obvious hot spots around the world. We have others brewing. Uh, all of them, in many ways, are tied together in what the president calls the global war on terrorism. I have long been arguing with people about calling everybody in any fight a terrorist. To me, it is, and, and this is from my experience at the Pentagon, it is very important that you identify who your enemy is, who you are fighting, what you call your enemy. Um, I think this is particularly true in Iraq, where I remember on my very first trip in there, and I was with General Abizaid, who is the commander of Central Command, who has the whole region. And we went to a small intelligence briefing, and 
the soldiers, and, and, and these briefings are great because the soldiers just want to tell the boss what he wants to hear <laughs> in many ways. So, so you go in there and they're saying, and sir, we found this terrorist family here and this terrorist family there. And General Abizade even said, you, you cannot call them all terrorists. It's, it's a very different kind of approach to fighting an enemy. I certainly will call Al-Qaeda terrorists. I would call Zarqawi, who was killed in June, a terrorist. But terrorism is a tactic. And even saying a global war on terrorism, to me, doesn't really make so much sense because terror is a tactic. Terrorism is a tactic. What we're fighting is more of a global insurgency. And to me, the lessons that we have or, or maybe have not yet learned, and history will tell us, in Iraq in fighting what is a true insurgency could be applied worldwide. And the lessons in Iraq are you can't, you, you've heard this said over and over probably, you cannot win this militarily. And people say, wait, they just said we're, we're not going to win militarily. We, we've got the military there. They've been saying from day one you can't win this militarily. And you really can't when you go into a country like that. You have to give the people infrastructure. You have to give them some hope. You have to give them some construction of their, uh, of their homes that were damaged or the electricity or the sewers. I mean, these generals over there spend as much time in meetings about sewers as they do about security. The trick is, of course, getting security under control. Um, if you've heard about fence sitters, I, I want to make this as simple as possible about what a fence sitter is. A fence sitter, and let's take Iraq, and I do believe that Iraq will determine where the future hotspots of the world are, and the outcome in Iraq will determine where we look in five years, where we look in two years, where we look in one year, depending on what happens in Iraq. The fence-sitters in Iraq are people who say, okay, when this is over, who's going to win? Are the Americans still going to be here? So should I side with the Americans, or are the Americans not going to be here? So I should side with the local Iraqi police who might take better care of me. It is a lot about personal safety. Put, put all the divisiveness aside for a moment. It is about protecting their families. And these are the fence-sitters. These are the people in these towns who are seeing this violence who say, which way is this going to go? And they can't quite commit to that. Let me read you. The, pre the president is absolutely right. This, this is the central front on terrorism. You can argue how it got there forever. Let me read you the news of the day. 13 soldiers and Marines died in two days, the most in such a short period since the summer of 2005. Four of those who died were out on a uh, foot patrol. The ages of those soldiers who died in the last two days ranged from 19 to 48. I have seen reservists over there well into their 50s. A report indicated the killing of the new leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, Abu uh, al-Masari, was not true. Uh, no, it was not. I was awakened about 3.30 this morning, and they asked me if I knew whether it was true or not. Uh, it was thought he was among a group of terrorists killed in an airstrike and a ground assault on a safe house. Also, gunmen stormed a home in southern Iraqi city of Samoa late on Wednesday, shooting dead three women and slitting the throat of an 18-month-old girl. Two bombs exploded during rush hour in Baghdad today, killing at least four and wounding dozens. And a bomb hidden in a bag exploded early on Thursday in central Baghdad, killing two and wounding at least 26 day laborers. The violence over the past weeks is a deadly combination of Sunni insurgent attacks and sectarian killings between Shiites and Sunnis. And on Wednesday, in an order to signal the Iraqi government's seriousness, they pulled out about 700 Iraqi policemen who they thought uh, were linked to the death squads. 
Um, a U.S. military spokesman said in the past week has seen the highest number of car bombs and roadside bombs in Baghdad this year. At least 34 people were killed across the country on Wednesday. Um, I was in Iraq uh, in August, and I went over there very quickly, uh, sort of a last-minute trip, because General Abizaid was on the hill, and he spoke about Iraq sliding towards civil war. So I was there. I left the next day and wanted to go over and see troops on the ground and some of the senior officers who I've dealt with over the years. Um, I have been in Iraq um, 11 times, and each time I embed with the U.S. military, and I usually go all over the country. I only stayed about four days this time. I, I try not to go and say, oh, it's bad, it's good, it's bad, it's good, I saw this, this is bad. But this time I went to Ramadi, which is in the western desert, and uh, it, it it's a pretty out of control place. It was, they brief you before you go out and the briefing that they gave to us before we went out um, in a convoy of Humvees into the government center, which is really like a total wild west for it. You, they told us all the terrible things that could happen. They told us three soldiers had died just before we'd gone out by an IED. They were blowing smoke grenades to form a screen so we could turn into the government center. And the government center is, as one of the soldiers explained, a government of one, the governor, because everyone else is too scared to show up for work. Um, it, it, there were snipers everywhere. But, but what is remarkable to me, and this is one thing I say every time I go, I actually think the troop morale is astonishingly good. I mean, some of these soldiers and Marines, there's some Marines now over there for their fourth deployment. Can you imagine? There are soldiers on second and third deployments, and they stay a year. The soldiers stay a year, the Marines stay seven months, and they are going over and over and over again. But their morale is really pretty amazing. Um, and I think, which, which brings me to a point, for the sake of argument, let's just say it really doesn't matter how we got into this. The historians will decide that. But what could happen in Iraq in the next few months, in the next few years? There are many who believe that a likely outcome is that sooner or later Iraq will find itself in a full-scale civil war. And if the midterm elections go poorly for the Republicans, the administration will be under tremendous pressure to find a way out so that Iraq is less of an issue in 2008. This is a senior official talking to me about this, by the way. Granted. It can't help but be an issue, but less of one if they were out by the end of 2007. If that happens, according to this official before, the Iraqi government is viewed by the Iraqi people as a government of national unity, civil war could be the end state. If we're serious about winning this war, it is going to take time to move the Iraqi government to a point where civil war is not the inevitable, inevitable outcome. And that is one thing that we're seeing is the undercurrent in the last few days and the last few months is that there are many in the administration and many in the military who do not believe the Iraqi government is stepping up. That's part of that. It cannot be won militarily. Um, the elections were a great milestone. The 2005 elections were, I, I was there for these elections. It is a remarkable thing to see. And I was up in a Black Hawk helicopter at sunset in Mosul and watched long lines of people who'd never voted in a real election come out and vote. But whether or not they voted for a national government is what the problem is. Many just voted for their ethnic and tribal loyalties and not really for a national government. And that is what you're seeing, and that is the problem today. Um, let me go on. 
Others believe that if we're not going to commit to a war-winning strategy versus a war-fighting strategy, we should cut our losses both in blood and treasure and exit stage left. Official told me if that is our decision, we must prepare the American people for the consequences that would be a civil war with a level of violence that makes the last three years a mere footnote used to explain the reason for the horrendous loss of life. Next, said the official, the U.S. will cease being the world's only superpower and we will be relegated the status of the world's bully and our reputation will be justly deserved. So that is something for all of us to think about. Um, now, the view from the White House, day after day at the White House, in fact, I just got an email just before I came, the White House puts out setting the record straight. This week's setting the record straight is about Bob Woodward's book. Every, they go point by point by point through the book. They also do this at press conferences. The National Intelligence Estimate on Iraq, which you may have seen last week, two weeks ago, I think it was, again, that time problem I have, um, said that the terrorists had actually dispersed. There were more of them. So, of course, we all go back and we find what the president has said in the past, and this is a little back and forth with Tony Snow. Uh, Tony, the president says we're winning the war on terrorism. I know, says Snow. But there are more of them, they're more dispersed, they're harder to find, and yet the president's saying we're winning. That's right, but we're also fighting the war on terrorism. And that's how they turn the corner and then they never quite come back to the question or answer the question. Um, so that is our challenge every day. Um, I, I don't think you hear the president say as much. When the Iraqi forces stand up, the U.S. forces will stand down. There are 298,000 Iraqi forces who are trained and equipped. Uh, and we are still the same number of troops in Iraq. So they are not saying that as much, and that is not a metric they use much anymore. Uh, the, um, one of the things that Condoleezza Rice said today, though, is they are starting to put a little more pressure on the Iraqi government, what they have, which they have not done in the past. Here's one more thing I'd like you all to think about, and it's something I grapple with. When a nation goes to war, should everyone's life be made at least a little more difficult? We have 140,000 troops there a lot of troops to have in Iraq, a lot of troops away from home, but it's a very small number of Americans when you look at it. In addition to those who fight, should all of us make some kind of sacrifice? Should there be a tax, some kind of national service? And if we don't all make sacrifice, does that make it easier for our nation to enter into wars in the first place? And I will end there and listen to your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Martha Raditz. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at Westminster Church, moderator of today's forum. Our guest today is journalist Martha Raditz. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the co-sponsor for today's forum, the Minnesota International Center and its president, Carol Engebretson Byrne. Thank you also to the Hognander Family Foundation for its help in making today's forum possible. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum on Thursday, October 19th, in just two weeks, when American foreign policy analyst Michael Mandelbaum explores how America acts as the world's government. Further information is available on eWestminster.org. Ms. Raditz, if you would now return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has to do with the relationship between the 
White House correspondents and the Presidential Press Secretary, and you've gone through a couple of those now at least. Can you comment maybe a little bit more on what the personal relationship is like and, and then also on the substance of what you hear? How much of it is news? How much of it is managed uh, letting out of information? Uh, I think there's a great deal of managed information coming up from the White House, most definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's what I was talking about with setting the record straight and not ever quite getting an answer to most of your questions. Um, you, you can really just, just it, it's almost like there's an instant replay button when you ask a lot of these questions. It's like, okay, there's a question on that, I should answer this way. Um, it's very difficult getting information. The relationship with the press secretary, I mean, the White House people are, are frankly, lovely to deal with. I mean, they really are. They, they are professional, they're courteous, um, but it is, we are both have different jobs to do. I mean, Tony Snow, you can battle with him in that press room and walk out five minutes later and, and it, it, we're professionals. They're professionals, we're professionals. They have a different agenda than we do, however. Is there not a critical disconnect between a free press and the politicized reporting which dominates our media now? And how can we fix that or change that? The politicized press, I mean, I think you can look at all kinds of places where there is politicized press. And that is, that is a new, I think, phenomenon in the last decade. Um, I, I, what worries me most about that is I don't know whether those high school students up there know the difference. I'm sure they do because they're here at this forum. So they're, they're the smartest high school students. But, but what I worry about is, is people not understanding when things are politicized or when opinions are politicized or or looking at answers to questions that you're getting from the administration of the Pentagon and not dissecting those answers. Um, what, let me say one thing about these press conferences. These press conferences are all live. There, there is this moment where, you know, we'll get mail from people or emails from people saying, oh, you should be much tougher, you should be harder, or you should be easier, you, should, you know, depending on where you're coming from, you know, you're a jerk and why are you pressing him or you're, you're a jerk because you're not pressing him. It, it, you really try to strike your own professional balance in those sessions. I, I still, ha I mean, I have a great deal of respect for the office of the president. I am in the White House. Uh, I am a professional journalist. I am not partisan. And I try to reflect that in my questioning. And I, I do have an advantage, and the president knows this, as a matter of fact, how many times I've been to Iraq. In fact, he's referred to it a couple of times in, in uh, press conferences. He'll say, as Martha knows, or something like that. Um, so they know that I come armed with ground experience, which I think helps. But I don't know how to solve the politicization problem. You all have to solve it. <laughs> you all have to figure out why that doesn't work. There's a new sort of uh, news reporting on television and elsewhere these days, and one of our high school students asks about what your thoughts are about, in quotes, fake news programs. For instance, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. I think Jon Stewart is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. I really do. I, I think his, his commentary is so biting. And you know what? If that was the only news you guys watched, I think it'd be fine. I mean, I, I, say, that to, I say that to my children. <laughs> The, I, I say that to my children because I know you're just not going to go home every night and watch the news. And if that's the only thing you're going to make time for, then, then that's okay. You still know the issues of the day. 
Um, you may or may not agree with what he says, you, but, but at least you get an idea of what the news is. Now, all my bosses at ABC are going to say, wait, 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 what about us? I mean, I, I, think, I think network news is terrific, and I think you get a half an hour's worth of news. I hope we stay to this format forever, um, because you can, you can hear cable all day, but you can't sit down for a half an hour at night and get the news by professionals who've been doing it for a very long time in a form that's 22 minutes long and I hope gives you some idea of what's going on in the world. And we have Nightline, we have all those things. <laughs> questions, several questions about secrecy and how you as a journalist attempt to deal with an administration that appears to resort to secrecy so frequently. Um, some of my colleagues at the, at the New York Times describe the process of trying to get stories in the White House as the outside-in process. You're, you're not going to get it from the inside out because they are so secretive. I mean, I, I think probably 90% of the stuff that's classified, according to people I know and some of the intelligence agencies, really never should have been. Um, so it's very hard getting at this. But the outside-in means, okay, if I know someone at the Pentagon who might know more about this because the White House is without question the most closed. Uh, in, in the city, if I know some of the Pentagon, if I know some from the State Department, then you can sort of work the issue from the outside and then ask the right questions on the inside of the bubble. Several questions about another hot spot in the world, that is Darfur. Do you sense any uh, critical engagement or serious engagement on the part of Washington with what's going on in Darfur? I, I think you're starting to. I mean, the President said this at the UN a couple of weeks ago. Notice how I just say everything was a couple of weeks ago. I think everything was a couple of weeks ago. But he was at the UN and, and he said, he had the most serious statements about Darfur that he has and said this cannot go on. Now we'll see about that and we'll see whether the UN engages in this or what the US does about this. But that, that is something that has been so long neglected. You mentioned that you're working on a book on uh, your experiences in Iraq. Other journalists are writing books uh, these days, Bob Woodard just written this interesting book. Could you comment, one of our listeners wants to know if you could comment on the impact of that book. On Bob Woodward's book? Yes. Or my own, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can say a word about your own book as well. <laughs> I think the impact of Bob Woodward's book is, uh, seems to be pretty enormous, and, and you can judge that by the amount of paper the White House is putting out trying to refute it. I asked Tony Snow the other day, um, the day, the that started leaking out but what Bob Woodward's book said because they had no problems with his other books, just no problems whatsoever. <laughs> and this one, uh, they seem to be finding everything possible that they can say and refute. I think it has a lot of impact. I think Tom Ricks, who wrote a book called Fiasco, um, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks, tells you that people in this country are still very interested in how we got into Iraq, how we get out of it, and what decisions were made or or not. And so I think both those books have, have enormous impact. Let's give you a chance to say a word or two about the book that oh, you're that, working I, on. I, I don't even need to talk about it. My book's not out. It's out in March. Um, it's, it's about, um, it's called The Long Road Home, A Story of War and Family. And it, uh, is, it, it does not talk about policy. It talks about the 1st Cavalry Division arrived on April 4th, 2004. There was a, a transfer of authority that night to a battalion in Sadr City, and it's before any of you had heard of Sadr City. In the previous year, one soldier had died there, 
and the night they transferred authority, literally at six o'clock when it, the flag passes to the new battalion of 700 soldiers, they had a platoon in the city that was pinned down. And within two hours, they had eight soldiers dead and 60 wounded and thousands of Sadr supporters in the street going after them. And this book goes between that 48-hour period and back at Fort Hood, Texas and around the country where uh, people were just getting the news of this battle. It also happens to be the battle where Cindy Sheehan's son died, which when I first started this, uh, she had not started her protest. Um, but he was on one of the rescue squads. Most of the, the people who died, most of the soldiers who died were on these rescue squads. But it, to me, it's, it's one of the days the war turned to an insurgency and everybody finally realized, hey, maybe they don't like us so much. Several questions about Iraq and our involvement there. Media coverage of the war in Iraq in the U.S. is so sanitized compared to that currently seen elsewhere in the world or to that which we saw in Vietnam or even World War II. Why is that and how can Americans know what's really happening? Well, I, I would disagree. I, I don't think it's, it's sanitized in any way by the networks. I think the access there is so difficult. Uh, you, you, it is so dangerous there for people to travel around in any way. I mean, we had, ABC yesterday had one of our Iraqi um, security people kidnapped. And, uh, it, it, and that is in the Baghdad Bureau. I don't stay in our Baghdad Bureau. I stay with the military, which as my son pointed out to me, which I always say, you know, they've got their big Humvees. He says, yeah, right, Mom, those are the people they're targeting. Um, it is, but, but it's one of the things I've tried to do and certainly not sanitized what you see. But what's very difficult is getting out and talking to Iraqis. It's very, very difficult, particularly for television, because you can't go anywhere incognito. I mean, you have cameras, you have, you know, I mean, we try. I mean, you all, I, I hope, are aware about my friend um, Bob Woodruff and Doug Vogt, who were injured last year, um, um, who are both doing really wonderfully by the way, and um, it, it, it's, it's tough and it's dangerous and we do the best we can. I, I feel very, very strongly about going over there and fortunately my family's supportive with eyes closed sometimes, but it's, it's um, I, I feel very strongly about covering the story and showing people what's happening, not only across the country, but the involvement of our U.S. troops and what they're doing there. Several questions about comparing Iraq and Vietnam. As a journalist today who's covered Iraq and knowing what your fellow journalists covered in Vietnam, are there similarities, differences? Where do you see those? I, I think people will debate this forever and people, one of the most interesting moments in Iraq to me was last summer, I think again, um, the summer of 2005, and I was with um, a general who was traveling around the country, and we ended up in Tel Afar, which is up in the north. And there is a colonel named H.R. McMaster who wrote the book Dereliction of Duty when he was younger. And it was about McNamara, and it was about Vietnam, and it was about the fact that senior generals had not spoken up. So here's Colonel McMaster in this tent. We were, we were in a sandstorm. We couldn't fly out, and we were stuck there for several hours. And the three-star general I was with started talking about Vietnam and started talking to these younger colonels who were in their first war saying, we let you down. We didn't train you to fight an insurgency because we swore we'd never ever let this happen again. And the enemy had a different idea. We, we couldn't plan for it. Um, 
are we fighting an insurgency? Are we, I mean, one major difference is, and I, and I go back to this idea that the country to me is, is disconnected from this war uh, in, in real ways, that there was a draft then. Everybody was, which is a good thing and a very bad thing, and, and, uh, and, and I think in that way the country was connected in ways that they're not today. I know we have reservists, um, who are who are leaving their civilian jobs and going over there, but but it is still a very different war. Several questions about the the draft or sacrifice that you referred to, the the lack of sacrifice in the states, the disconnect. What do you think might connect the the U.S. to the war more directly? Are you advocating, or would you advocate, or? Uh, a return to the draft, and then remember there are high school not students advocate in the room. Anything, <laughs> anything like that. At the very least, at the very least, I think people should be smart about this war. It makes me crazy when I get in an argument—not an argument, but any discussion with people—and they don't know what's going on, and they ha don't have the foggiest clue of facts, and yet they have very strong opinions. I think, as a nation, we need to educate ourselves. We do, as I say. We've spilled a lot of blood and lost a lot of people, more than 2,700, and 20,000 wounded, which this nation will be living with forever. And the other thing I would ask is that people every day read the name, the names of the soldiers and Marines who were killed over there. It will connect you to that war. And I think that is the least we could all do. Several of our, our listeners have asked about possible resolution, having been on the ground in Iraq, having spoken with senior military uh, officials and some of the soldiers fighting the war. Uh, what, do you, what is your opinion of the division of Iraq into three different nations, as uh, Senator Biden and others have, have proposed as a resolution? It, it may end up that way anyway, <laughs> without, without anyone's opinion. I know that, I, I, I know a lot of people who think that that probably should have been done from the beginning, that that's the way it will end up, and they look at it as a, a, a Bosnia model, um, that it will divide itself. I think for the region it would be difficult to do, and we have to remember where the oil is in Iraq, and that would be the most difficult thing to divide. Um, the, the Sunnis would certainly worry about where the oil was coming from and whether they would get uh, their fair share. I think it'd be very difficult. I, I think that's one thing that you have to watch in the future whether it will just end up that way anyway. Question from a high school student. Do you think that it would be irresponsible to leave Iraq, say, by 2007? And what do you think of America's role of police officer of the world? Um, you mean the, the nation building that when, when George Bush came to office, they said they'd never do? Now. Let's, let's remember 9-11. We have to remember 9-11 and all this. I, I, I don't mean to sound like the president here, but that did change foreign policy. That did change the way everybody looks at the world. Um, do we read the first part of that question again about, oh, you're gonna be to Irresponsible to leave Iraq by 2007. Um, I, am not gonna, I am not gonna directly say what I think about that, other than the fact that I think the military there and the people that I've talked to on the ground think it's a horrible idea and that if you leave uh, that, and you, things I was reading from the senior official, that if you leave, you will leave them with a civil war or worse, or um, one of the senior officers I, I know fairly well over there told me he went to the Iran-Iraq border the other day, and he said it was stunning because we forget 
the loss of life and that there were a million, a million Iraqis who died at this, uh, uh, on the border here. A million. And that three million were wounded. And, and he had this description. He said, can you imagine what it must have sounded like with three million people walking around wounded? Just the sounds in that desert. And he said that's what worries him most, is that if the U.S. just pulls out, that that country will dissolve and the effect on the region as a whole. Question about the U.S. role in uh, applying or not applying the United Nations uh, mandates or the Geneva Conventions on, on uh, treatment of prisoners. Bush signed the legislation stating that Congress did not have the power to enforce this anti-torture legislation recently prompted by Guantanamo. Uh, how is the White House uh, reacting to and justifying the, this controversy, the immunity they're requesting? This was one of those mornings you wake up and you have these legal <laughs> documents in front of you. And you're, uh, um, this was so complicated, the whole Geneva Conventions. And, and the way I think I finally understood it is that the objection of, of John McCain and others, uh, in, in addition to objecting to torture, is that the Bush administration decided not to go for the international law, the Geneva Conventions, instead going for the War Crimes Act, which is a domestic law. But depending on who you ask, it's the same effect. They can, with that domestic law, define Geneva Conventions, but they've taken away the ability of other countries to do the same. I, I, it's an enormously complicated. Um, the president clearly, this is one of his issues he feels very strongly about. You know, you can really sort of tell with him um, I mean, talk about body language. I mean, he has this sort of, you know, go forward from the chest body language, and he, he cares a great deal about maintaining this. Um, there is so much we don't know about this, though. I mean, they will not answer questions about this. We do not know. I mean, I know many people have told ABC that there is this um, waterboarding, which I'm sure you've heard of, which simulates drowning. Whether they can still do that or not, I don't know. They won't answer the question. One of our students asks, what would you say is the most important or significant misconception we have about the White House and how it operates? Well, I don't know what your, <laughs> what, what your perception is. I guess I'd have to know that. I think what always astonishes me about government and the administration is how few people are, are basically running the country, I guess, and how, how there's such a core of people at the White House, at the Pentagon, at the State Department, who are controlling all of our lives and the decisions we make. I think that's, to me, the most astonishing. These questions from the students are great, Martha. So here comes another one. Okay. Does it bother you that our foreign policy is to force our will on other countries? That was that policing the, yeah. the world question that I forgot to answer, too. Um, High school students, I'm a journalist, and I'm not supposed to really tell you my opinion, so let me give you my analysis. Are we, one, one of the things that I think, I would not say forcing the will. You, you have heard the president and the administration feel very strongly about bringing democracy to the world, and that will change the world. Um, and yet, in the global war on terror, which they call it, I, I, I think a lot of smart people will say we're not getting to the root of the problem. We're not understanding cultures. We're not understanding the difference between going in and, and, and saying we're here, we're here with our democracy, and 
and I think that's where the clash of cultures comes in. And I think, and I think admittedly in the administration, they would say that perhaps there was not enough understanding in different areas of the world. So forcing our will on other places, I think has to be done carefully. I, I, I shouldn't say forcing our will, it has to be done carefully. I don't think we should force our will on people who don't want it. But I think that we all have to have a greater understanding of the fact that we are not them. We do not know what we don't know about different cultures. You cannot, I cannot stand here and say, you know, this Iraqi man is gonna want just what I have. They, other parts of the world hasn't been raised the way we were, what, whatever, we have to be aware of that. And, and officials will say, look, we're not trying to, to bring Jeffersonian democracy to these areas. If they do it, okay, it's better than not at all. But I do think there has to be a much greater awareness of, of how this works and, and it can't be kinetic. You can't go into these places and shoot everybody into submission either. You have to understand that when you go to places, you have to get the fence sitters, as I talked about. You have to understand their culture. You have to give them something to want. You have to make their lives better. And if they don't perceive that their lives are better, they're not going to want whatever it is you're offering. Another question from a high school student here. How do you avoid having an opinion? That's killing me. <laughs> uh, you're Tony Snow now, and yeah. I'm Martha Raddatz, I'll, right? I'll do the Tony Snow smile. How, that, how, do that you always... how do you avoid having an opinion when you know or suspect what you are being told is not true? Um, then I have an opinion. Then I have an opinion. I mean, if I'm told something I absolutely know is not true, um, I'll come right back at them. I, I, I think, here, here's one thing about opinions, or knowing the truth, or knowing right from wrong that you're gonna learn in your, in your lifetime. And that is, there is not always absolute truth. There is, you may see it one way, I may see it another. I mean, I have plenty of opinions. I try not to let them seep too much onto the air, um, because that's not my job. But. Do I know, I, I mean, one of the reasons I like to do these talk shows at, at the end of the week or Washington week or, or this week as you can empty your notebook, you can bring to that table any depth of knowledge that you have about a topic that you perhaps can't do on the evening news. And in those, if, if, I, if I go to Iraq and I saw that they were cheating on the voting and I say that and somebody has a problem with that, I, I mean, I've actually gotten letters from people who said, how do you know that guy voted seven times? It's like, well, I was right there and I watched him vote seven times, okay? And we filmed it and we showed you that. I don't know what else to do to convince you. Um, so I, I, I think, certainly I feel strongly about a lot of stuff. I, I, you can tell I feel strongly about Iraq. Um, but there is not always absolute truth. There are different ways to look at all kinds of things. And that's what's great about, about being a journalist. I mean, you have this, wonderful disciplined curiosity, you have this wonderful um, both sides of a story, and it doesn't, and I frankly don't think that means you come down in the middle, always. I mean, you, you keep pressing, you keep finding truth, you keep finding what you can. High school student asks, you began by describing- Did any adults write any questions? <laughs> They're always the best questions. Where are these touchy-feely questions? Come on. You began by describing your experience of your job and the need to, to touch, to see, to feel. This approach seems, and only a Minnesota high school student would use this word, 
This approach seems phenomenological. I thought you were going to say neat, but I, you know. How do you cope with the depressing nature of each day's news when you experience the reality on the ground and then report from a neutral voice? Um, I, I feel like I have a lot of passion about what I do, and I don't always speak. You, you don't have to be neutral. You don't have to have an opinion and speak it. You don't have to be opinionless. That's like phenomenology or whatever. <laughs> um, I, I think passion is different than opinion. I have um, flown out, and my in-laws here will had got this uh, email, I think, several years ago. I flew out on Easter Sunday from Iraq and, uh, a couple of years ago, and in my, when you fly it on a military aircraft on a C-130, big cargo plane, you really know, do not know who's going to be on that airplane, but on that day there were four flag-draped coffins, and they, they're literally right there in the airplane with you. Now, does that color what I do? Does it make it more important? Does it make it more, give me more passion? Yes, 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 it does. Do I try to bring that to my reporting? Yes, I do. Is that an opinion? No, it's passion. It's caring about a topic. It's wanting people to understand that part of a story that you do, don't see. First of all, they don't, let you, they don't allow people to take pictures of these coffins. But to sit there for a couple of hours, we flew to Kuwait on an Easter Sunday with, with the cost of war makes you study it harder, understand it, and feel it, and try to bring that to people when you report on it. Take a look ahead, if you will. What will be the top priorities of the Bush White House, from your perspective, in the final two years of his presidency? I think this week and, and these midterm elections will be so critical because, as this one official said, if, if, um, if the Republicans lose the Senate, if they lose the Senate and the House, uh, the administration is going to be under enormous pressure, I think, to find a different direction in Iraq. Um, we can ask till we're blue in the face whether, and I have, or pale blue in the face, whether there is a new strategy that's needed given the fact that we still have 140,000 troops there, uh, we're still losing approximately two soldiers and Marines a day, and I think, frankly, that Iraq will remain the um, the central front. Let's hope that none of these hot spots in the future all come together at once. Let's hope that North Korea doesn't really act up or Iran doesn't really act up in Iraq because no matter what you hear, or it is what you hear, believe what you hear, the forces are stretched. The equipment is stretched. You, you know, listen, you, you can't go back four or five times. I was at Camp Pendleton last weekend asking some Marine Corps families about fourth deployments, third deployments, and they all had a pretty good attitude, but y you can't do this forever. So let's hope all those hotspots don't converge, but I, I, I would say without question, Iraq will remain the, remain the central issue for this presidency. What would you say to a young person in the audience today about how one might get into the kind of career you've pursued? Not the route I took, okay, which we don't want to talk about. Um, the, I always joke about this. I just I did an interview on C-SPAN, and my daughter, who is 25 and in law school, pointed out to me that the, every time they ask a personal question, I would flip my shoe and my leg around because I was good. And the question was, was you know, how do you tell? I dropped out of college in my senior year, 
because I just did, and I was almost ready to graduate, and I was just kind of a jerk and, you know, whatever, so I played pool or whatever, and, and then I started being a journalist, and I liked it, and the truth is I'd gotten a job in my last year of college, and I liked it, and I figured to heck with it, so all of you should go to, high, or to college. You're doing pretty well in high school so far. You should, uh, you should hang in there, but I, you know what? I think history is a wonderful major for, for journalism. Um, I, I, the, the College of Communications kids, I say, look, don't just, don't just get an education in communicating. You have to know, have some depth about what you want to communicate. I think history is a wonderful thing to study. Um, political science is a wonderful thing to study. I never studied any of it. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I studied history. I studied everything you do in college. But I, did, I didn't major in anything to do with journalism. I just liked it. And I sort of learned the hard way. And, um, and, and that in itself is a great way to learn to be a journalist and to travel around and to find out what, what makes you passionate. Thank you, Martha Raddatz. Thank that concludes you. our Westminster Town Hall Forum.